You're listening to The Omni Show. Get to know the people and stories behind the Omni Group's award-winning productivity apps for Mac and iOS. Music. I'm your host, Brent Simmons. On the line with me today is Alex Lindsay, who you probably know from PixelCore and the MacBreak Weekly podcast. Say hello, Alex. Hello, Alex. Also with us today are two co-hosts. We have Ken Case, CEO of the Omni Group, and Mark Bosco, our intrepid producer. Say hello, Ken. Hello, Ken. Say hello, Mark. Hello, Mark. All right. Well, let's, let's get on with this. So, <laughs> Alex, we're, we're here to talk with you about OmniGraphle, and we have a couple listener questions we'll start right off with. Eric Bowers asks, what's your most recent use case for OmniGraphle? In other words, what's the most recent thing you've done? Uh, I can't actually uh, talk about the most recent one, <laughs> but I can, I can sure. say what it was. I mean, so what I do a lot of in OmniGraphle are wiring diagrams. So usually what happens is, is that we're, uh, what we have to connect, and I posted one of those on Twitter, a very simple one of my home office. That's just me fiddling about. But anytime we build anything, it starts with a discussion. You know, this is what we have to do and this is what it's going to have to look like. And we kind of talk through the equipment that needs to be made. Then usually, almost immediately, we start throwing objects into OmniGraffle. You know, we know we need a router. I know we need, I need a video switcher. I need, you know, this many Terranexes. I need these cameras. And we just start throwing those in. And a lot of those are all kind of pre-built for us uh, with the connections and everything else built into them. Mm-hmm. And then we just start thinking through it. And, and really, it is a thought process uh, as much as anything else. You have the components there, and then you just start connecting them. And what it really lets you do is think about how you're putting those together and really come through mindfully, build your, your kit. I think w- we started before we had OmniGraph or before we were using it in this way. You know, you start putting the kit together immediately and start wiring it up and testing it. And then you'd realize about halfway through that, I really wish I had paired these cables together or done something else. <laughs> or, or you'd look at it and go, this has become a real mess. You know, like, and I have no idea what, what's going on here. And usually we kind of think it out, put it together in OmniGraphle. And then OmniGraphle stays open while we're building our kits. Hmm. So while we build the kit, it, it stays open. Because what happens is, is the map is never the territory. And so while we're changing things, we change it in OmniGraphle. So when we're done building our kit, the OmniGraphle drawing is a as-built project. You know, so it's, it really represents what's there, which is super important when you come back to it two years later. So it starts off as the plan and ends up as the documentation. Exactly. Right. Exactly. That's cool. We're constantly moving things around. And then we, as we start to go through it, we start coloring, the, like whatever color connectors we're using for the cables or whatever color connect, cable we use, we start coloring everything in so that you can literally look at a, a green rear twist and go... Uh, what is that? And you look over an OmniGraphle and it, you can see what that, you know, what that's connected to. Hmm. Hmm. So to provide some context for our listeners, um, the kind of kits you're doing, what you're actually making is, um, this is part of your business, PixelCore, where you're setting up uh, live streaming. And, yeah. Um, yeah, we do a little bit of everything, so, uh, but uh, most of it's live streaming. And, so, mm-hmm. uh, and, and these kits can be as small as a kit that you could literally check into a plane, although we check a lot of things onto planes, so that's not a good example. I mean, we, 
Mm-hmm. I think our record is uh, something over 40 cases uh, going wow. to Tokyo. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway. <laughs> nice. So, but a smaller kit, uh, what we call fly kits, um, are these usually sectioned groups of kits. And they, and they can be as few as, you know, 6U, you know, so that might be a little switcher and a router and a couple little effects uh, boxes. But it can be also, they scale up to control rooms that might have 200 or 300 U of, and a U is a, if you ever see a rack-mounted computer, a U is one division of that. <laughs> so uh, okay. we think of things in U's. Um, so it's like if you see a big racked computers, you'll see all of these um, machines and they're different thicknesses. And so one might be a 3U, might, one might be a 1U. And we think in U's because that's what we have to store. Mm. So two or 300 U is a pretty big system for me. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not the biggest systems we work on, but it's the biggest ones we usually design ourselves. And the smallest ones are about six. And so as we start to put these together, this is how we run our shows. So all the video that you see on the screen in the room, video that goes to the web, videos back to our monitors so that we can see what's going on and, and actually control it. So all of those things are, are things that we have to figure out where all the inputs and outputs are going to go to make that work. And so it's not complicated, but it's it, it's a lot of little details. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Oh, like many things. Yeah, exactly. I've always been more of a, a words guy than a videos guy. So I haven't been paying attention. Now suddenly it appears like this is like a giant thing. Like people all over the world are live streaming stuff all the time and need these kinds of setups. Yeah. And, and people start usually pretty small. We did. Uh, we started with a laptop and a couple uh, converters that went to the laptop. And each job requires something new and you buy a couple new things or you rent a couple new things. And before you know it, you've got a, a warehouse full of hardware. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but it definitely starts smaller, but it is a big deal. Uh, live streaming is a, is something that I think we're just in the brink of right now. We're kind of in that, uh, the way I think of it is a hundred years ago when we started doing, making film, people started just putting cameras up and pointing them at a stage and shooting it. Like it's just, you know, it was a, a play that they put onto film and then they put it out. And then after a while, people said, you know, we don't have to shoot this in order. And, you know, we don't have to just do it all on a stage. We could go outside. And there's a whole bunch of people started making decisions about that. And before, next thing you know, we, we had the Matrix, right, which is completely <laughs> right. you know, a disconnection, you know, or, or, or Avengers. And so right now we're in that we're just going to shoot events the way we know them to be. So we see a lot of live streams where people are reproducing a classroom or they're reproducing a conference and it's, it's very basic, but this is just the beginning. Uh, mm-hmm. And we're starting to see gamers and other folks start to break away, you know, from that look and feel and create something new. And so I think that we're going to see a lot of evolution in this area over the next uh, couple decades. That's interesting. I've seen a lot of like individual gamers doing their own live streaming. Is that something now that they're hiring out for or you're designing systems for them? Or? A lot of the gamers are doing it themselves. Uh, we, when it becomes a bigger event where a, a, usually a brand is involved is usually where we get brought in. Mm-hmm. So uh, most of my work in the past 10 years has been mostly Fortune 5 and governments. And so usually it's a big project that needs to be done you know, to make that work. The mm-hmm. gamers, uh, you know, have lots of smaller tools that are a lot less expensive and easier to use than what we use for larger events. Sure. And those have become amazing. I, I uh, you know, the, what a gamer can do today compared to only two or three years ago is, is kind of a, it, it's stunning. You know, they, they, the controllers, there's these dedicated controllers that are built for them mm-hmm. and they tie into all this uh, code 
and you, they can integrate it with their game and integrate it with uh, responding to people that are chatting. So they're really on the bleeding edge of, of live streaming, experimenting with new ways to communicate with their audience, um, experimenting with how they're going to you know, show you what they're working on. It's a little rough around the edges at times, but it's really where the, the next steps are going to come from. Mm. Did you start out knowing this is something you wanted to get into or did you just kind of fall into it as you started? Totally, totally fell into it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I come, I come out of, I mean, I, I was always interested in video. I, I, I started writing, uh, actually writing programs in, uh, when I was 10 and most of it was around, well, first, the initial stuff was Dungeons and Dragons. So I didn't like to roll dice for non-player <laughs> characters. Right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I wrote a program that <laughs> made the non-player characters for me because I was going through them so quickly. <laughs> and, um, and so, but very quickly I moved to graphics because I like to draw dungeons. You know, that was actually the reason that I was doing it. And so, you know, programmatically drawing dungeons or characters and so on and so forth. And so, so I got into graphics pretty early on. And then kind of moved to first radio. I got into radio for a little while um, and then into TV and then film. And I worked at, at Lucasfilm and Industrial Light Magic on a uh, space movie. <laughs> and so, right. uh, and um, was that, uh, that a great experience? I, I bet a lot of our listeners would. You know, it was I'd an amazing experience. That. So I worked at, yeah. I, I worked uh, 1996 to 1999. So the 1996 through 1998, I worked at Lucasfilm um, at Skywalker Ranch. Um, uh-huh. At that point, I was part of the Star Wars art department. And so okay. I did animatics. So these are 3D visualizations of different action scenes. So my job mostly wrapped around the pod race, space battle, end battle. Hmm. And um, so we would take the storyboards that were produced by the art department. And then we would create kind of a Saturday morning cartoon version of them. And then we would deliver those to the editor, Ben Burt in this, in this case. And then he would look at them and ask for a couple of changes. And then about once a week, we'd meet with the director and he would you know, look at them and go, you know, once they, they came off the storyboard, our job was to kind of keep on evolving them so that when they went down to ILM and when they were actually shot, it was really well thought out. So, so George would look at it and be like, eh, matter if it went more like this. And we'd, so we'd fix that <laughs> and we would do another, you know, and, and do another version. We might do 10 or 15 versions of the, of the shot, but really fast and furious. Uh, we, everything had to go out, you know, we were pr- producing, maybe 25 shots a week, uh, where wow. once I got to ILM, or I joined the, what was called the um, Rebel Mac unit. Mm-hmm. And so the Rebel Mac unit or Rebel unit uh, was a small group of folks that was kind of halfway between what was called Digital Mat, which they're, they're doing matte paintings on, on a Mac, and then uh, CG, which is the, was the big iron, you know, the SGIs. And so our job yeah. was to find to do cheaper, faster shots. And so most of it was hard surface, so vehicles some city shots, a lot of spaceships. And so most of my time at ILM was just working on the queen ship. So I mostly just did shiny ships in space. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Which sounds like a dream job, I'm sure, to a lot of our listeners. (laughs) It was, you know, it's working at both Lucasfilm. I mean, I didn't go to school for film. So it was really my my degree, you know, Mm -hmm. was working on, on these films. And so I didn't know any of the basics of even filmmaking. Like I, I did an yeah. animatic the, in like the first week and David DeZoritz, who I was working with, uh, looked at it and said, I got to explain what line of direction means, which is <laughs> you know, like, like, he's like, you have to understand what that is before you do any more animatics. So I was that green and I was working there and I just, mm. and I was sure that they were going to fire me every week. Uh, so I worked, I mean, I, I hid the fact that I was working like 90 hours a week because I was, I was just trying to keep up mm. and didn't want to get fired because it was an amazing job. And then when I got down to ILM, the most amazing thing about ILM is that every person down there, you, you, you grow up 
if you get to ILM, you grew up and most of us were the kid at school that was a little hyperactive. Most of us, you know, got really good, you know, generally pretty good grades or did crazy things. And we were kind of uh, one of the stronger kids in class, you know, in, in the room most of the time. Mm-hmm. And you get to ILM and really quickly you are not that. <laughs> you, know, you, are, you are maybe, you know, in the, if you're lucky, you're in the middle. You know, and, uh-huh, and so yeah. it's just it, it, the most some of the most brilliant people I'd ever worked with. And so you you would learn so much every day from, you know, my supervisor, the, su- the supervisor for the sequences that I was working on was John Knoll. And uh, he wrote, you know, with his brother wrote Photoshop. And, yeah. And, you know, having John look at your stuff every day was uh, <laughs> was was slick. And if you had questions like one time, I think we got in discussion about how a Gaussian blur was calculated and John showed us because <laughs> he you know <laughs> he wrote it you know so so it's it was a, a great experience it was definitely my my master's and phd in in uh making images mm. nice I'm, maybe i'm skipping ahead there a little bit but you said you were programmatically making dungeons for the needs you uh yeah. now also kind of use automation in building out your diagrams and omnigraphle in a similar way you know i don't and i should <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know it's it because it's such a um for me, a creative process. I don't do a lot of programmatic stuff. I do want to get into, I think the big thing that I haven't, that I feel like I need to sit down and figure out is, is controlling, you know, IOs, Mm -hmm. um, or, or managing the IOs so that, you know, right now you can connect any of our devices. I can connect any output to any input. And what I kind of want to be able to do is get to a point where I can only connect the video outs to the video ins. Mm -hmm. You know, and when I connect all the power, you know, eventually what we want to do is kind of try to put more information into the objects mm-hmm. so that when I plug them all in, it tells me, you know, what is my power draw, which becomes an obsession of ours. So, you know, if I'm going to, if I drop six items into something, I want to eventually be able to, you know, know what that power draw is going to be and whether I'm going to snap circuits or, right. you know, or, or, and how much UPS backup I need and those types of things. We haven't gone that far yet. And, and it's just been a matter of time to sit down and, and figure it out. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a perfect case for automation, though. I, oh, I assume absolutely. all those numbers are known, so you just need calculations. Just, yeah, it's just putting them in. Yeah, and mm-hmm. so it's yeah. that's that's been an area we haven't dived into yet. There's programs on the PC that are just built for doing this kind of thing. That's mm-hmm. why we kind of think about it is because they control all those things for you, and you actually download the object from you know it's like the black magic object or the grass valley object mm-hmm. you know from their database and it has all the information in it and and then you can you know interconnect those the problem with them is, is they're very um they're very geeky <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. the thing that i love about omnigraphle is is that i can not only can i use it and do very detailed and very uh, good looking diagrams because a lot you know some of the stuff is the, the the raw diagrams for what we do are internal to us. In fact, we don't show them very often to anybody. But at the same time, there's a lot of diagrams that we do that explain to the client or to partners or to other vendors what we're doing. So for instance, there might be a complex satellite backhaul that we have to figure out. A backhaul is I have a video in one part of the world and I have to bring it to another part of the world before I encode it for streaming. I need to move it from, let's say, India back to Washington, D.C., which is a very common backhaul for us. And so mm-hmm. to do that, you're not just 
putting up a satellite and sending it to DC or you're not just streaming it to DC because the Indian infrastructure sometimes is not something we necessarily trust by itself. So for instance, in India, we might have two satellite trucks because just in case one goes down. I mean, these are, these are big events. These aren't, Mm -hmm. you know, like a virtual classroom. This is like a head of state or a CEO of a big company or whatever. And so we need to absolutely be able to guarantee it. So for instance, we'll have two trucks that will uplink to two different satellites. um, Mm -hmm. And then one satellite might come down in Sydney and the other one might come down in Singapore. And then we route those back over typically fiber back to D.C. They may have a stop in L.A. before they get to D.C. And we want to illustrate for all of our partners, this is how all this this is happening. You know, mm-hmm. these, are the, these are the signals that are coming back. And if there's a return signal, sometimes we'll take the signal in D.C., we'll add some stuff to it and send it back to India and put it up on AsiaSat 5 to be there for all of India so they can use it for TV or whatever. But we have to convert it because we're, we're shooting the whole thing in, let's say, 60 frames a second or 30 frames a second. And, but we have to return it in 25 or 50. And so it might be taking it from one type of video like progressive and giving it back to them interlace. And so these are all the things we have to do. And we have to draw these very complex graphs so that everyone understands what we're doing and they can look at it and go, well, what about this? And, and you send things to people in paragraphs and it will, they will not see the problem. You send a, a picture of it, of this is what it's going to do, and they can very quickly look at it and go, oh, I, that's not going to work or we forgot this. And, and so mm-hmm. the pictures become very, very important to what we do. So making those pictures look good at the same time is helpful too because... The, the issue is, is that every time you touch a client, it's part of the sales process. So we didn't have any salespeople. We don't do that. So there's no salespeople. It's just do the job really well. <laughs> you know? yeah. So, yeah. so, so, and then you'll get more work. But part of it is, is that one of the things that I've talked to people that I work with a lot is that every time we touch the client, that's our sales, right? And so, yeah. so then how we interact with them over email, on the phone, when we're there, how we're dressed, when we show up, whether we're early or on time, Every piece of data that we hand them is a representation of what we are doing in the company. And so we pay attention to little details and making things look nice. And when they come back, and probably more than we should at times, it's a little bit bit of extra work, but it really makes a difference in how people feel. And and, and the level of of a lot of the work that I've done over the last 10 years, it's, it's just important. And it helps you stand out because a lot of people aren't doing that, you know, Mm -hmm. and and you're seeing, you know, a lot of times engineering documents are not something you'd want to show to a client, you know, and, and, (laughs) and so Mm -hmm. we try to make them look nice so that when someone sees them, you know, it's one of those things that uh, another thing that happens, you know, we're working in live events where uh, things go wrong. You know, like it's, it's not if they're going to go wrong, they're, they're going to go wrong. Yeah, it's it's sure. happening live. You can't, you know, you have a start time and generally there's no way to change that start time. So you're backing into that system. And one of the things that happens is, thing, you know, something that doesn't go right. And once that happens, there's like four or five or six teams that are all working on this project and everyone's trying to figure out who's going to go under the bus. You know, like, you know, like, you know, like somebody, you know, there's like a little, uh, you know, everyone's running around and one person's going to end up in the, under the bus for that. And so, so I, you know, another thing we always talk to our team about is, is staying away from the front of the bus, you know, <laughs> you know, like, like, and, and so, so when you're buttoned up, if your equipment's well organized and your drawings are well organized and you, and you show up on time and you communicate well, and you tell people where there are danger points that, that you can't manage or other things like that, you're, you're, you're constantly stepping away 
you know, away from the bus. <laughs> and so, and, um, and you'll know when you're in front of the bus because you'll, you'll feel the tire marks. So uh, when something goes wrong and, and you know, and, and when everything works, you don't, it doesn't matter. You know, we're all happy and we're having a good time, but you're always trying to prepare yourself for when things uh, aren't working. And unfortunately it's kind of part of corporate production, you know, that, mm-hmm. that you just, there's a lot of CYA. Mm-hmm. To express it more positively, uh, the fact that you make <laughs> th- that you make your 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 documents, you know, uh, not only correct but look good too. That extra effort not only makes a difference to your business, makes a difference to the success of each project, but it also seems to me that's such a, a Mac community thing. You it know, is. We're it kind is. of in this community because we're all like that. We're all yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I, I definitely that. think like you, you can almost always separate <laughs> people who are Mac people and PC people in production because they, you know, just by the, the documents you get, you mm-hmm. know, and how they, and how they look. And there is, there's definitely an expectation of symmetry and cleanness and, and a thought about fonts and, and a, Kerning. yeah, <laughs> Oh man, you know, and whether you're using comic sans or papyrus and you right. know, those, those types of things. And so, so there's definitely uh, a lot of those discussions that we think of probably a little bit more than, um, than others. And I don't mean to put down PCs, but it's mostly that on a Mac side, there's definitely, it's so part of everything you see everywhere that it just stands out when you don't, when you don't have it. And on the PC side, it just doesn't stand out as much. Yeah. Yeah, that was definitely something I noticed when we'd, uh, I used to do work for Nat Geo a lot, and it was mostly Max in house, but when we would have a big live show, we might have some external producers with a, you know, have a truck come in and all that, and they, they would all be PC users, and you'd definitely see the difference in, like, kind of, the attention to detail yeah. between the yeah. groups. Yeah. Because you don't see it. I mean, you just, when you're using it, I mean, there are definitely new tools that have gotten much better mm-hmm. that are coming out. But for a long time, you just never saw well-designed documents, uh, you know, on a PC. Yeah. They just didn't look that way because nothing looked that way on that side uh, because the interface didn't look that way. And I think that Microsoft's actually yeah. made some pretty big gains in that area. But I still think that there's, on the Mac side, there's much more of a culture of how you use white space and how you... Um, lay things out. And I think Apple's done a really good job in kind of guiding developers, which then, of course, guides all of us as we use our iPhones. We're subconsciously picking up on all of those things. Hmm. I heard a recent-ish discussion with you on MacBreak Weekly about using OmniGraphle on an iPad. Sounds like that's something you're, you're doing more and more these days. I'm doing some of it. So mm-hmm. I have it on my iPad, and I lay out simpler things on it. I think for the wiring diagrams, I think it's just kind of the approach of what you need to do as far as clicking lots of things, you know, and, and, and doing the wiring diagrams that I've, mm-hmm. I haven't been super successful at for laying out some basic stuff and showing people things on, on some of the more general diagrams. I definitely use it on the iPad because I really like my iPad. You know, I don't like <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't like taking my laptop anywhere if I don't have to, you mm-hmm. know, and, and, and more and more, I find that when I go out, I just take the iPad and when I come home, if I'm doing something heavier, then I'm using my iMac. I use my laptop here and there, but it, you know when I have to. But it's not a not something I do as often as I used to. Mm-hmm. Again, the challenge that that I've had is it, it's not so much a, a function of the app on the iPad, but just the way that you have to touch the screen. And there's oftentimes multiple things you're trying to do when you're connecting lots of things that are really close together. And I think that that separation of having the the mouse control and a slightly more accurate connection has been something that I, I for wiring diagrams, at least I still need to mm. use the computer, for, the, the Mac for, but for uh, general diagrams, I, I have been using it on, on the iPad, which I like. Mm. Do you use the pencil very much? 
I use the pencil all the time. Like if I'm touching something, I'm using the pencil. Like I don't, I use my hand to, to touch things, you know, like to play games or to, or to hit things. But as soon as I'm doing anything that requires any kind of precision, I'm using the pencil. Yeah, it makes sense. There was a, an update to the, um, the routing of lines recently. Is that something that, that you noticed, Alex? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the routing of the lines are, is getting better, you know, each time. And so I, when I started doing wiring diagrams, because I've been doing wiring diagrams now on OmniGraffle for probably seven or eight years. And so when I started, it was really me forcing everybody to use OmniGraffle because that's what I use. And they weren't super happy about it <laughs> uh, because they were using AutoCAD you know, for everything. Mm. And, and it had, mm. you know, ortho and you just kind of boom, 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 boom. But I, I just was like, I wouldn't look at it if I, cause if I, if I couldn't use it in Omnigraphle, I didn't want to look at it. And so, <laughs> um, you know, so that, that became the pressure to, to move that direction. And, uh, we're, we, we've been a pretty, you know, big Mac house, you know, I mean, that's what I use for, that's what I use. So, so anyway, it's gotten much better. I feel like almost every update we're seeing better tools as far as, as getting those connections to work more and more seamlessly. Cause it, a lot of times when you're doing these wire diagrams, there's hundreds of connections. And so it does make a big difference mm-hmm. when that routing is a little bit more fluid. What stencils do you uh, tend to use? Are they all in-house things or? They're all in-house. Yeah. And, and I've thought about publishing them, you know, at some point, but I haven't done that yet. We build them all because no one else, I don't, we definitely go up and look for stencils because <laughs> <Sure. laughs> yeah. I don't want to make them. But, and some of them are, are graphics. So the ones that are client facing, I might have a lot of graphics or I might have right. things that look like the object. And then for our internal stuff, there's just a lot of boxes with IO. You know, we know what that looks like. We just need mm-hmm. to talk about the input and output. And we're m- more thinking about how easy it is to work. And it is a lot of setup. So we do like to have stencils laid out and, Again, some of them are kind of overheads that have people and cameras and stages and pieces. And so we're kind of throwing those in quickly. And a lot of times those evolve. I mean, even though we have a stencil, I think that the only thing that I like about not using stencils all the time is that it evolves our look. You know, so if you look at our objects over the last five years, they look much different. But it's not like they look significantly different. But, you know, I don't like the thickness of that black line anymore. (laughs) You know, I I was into I was into thick for a while or rounded corners. And now we're not into that anymore. And and (laughs) so, yeah, so our stencils kind of evolve with that look and feel. I do love the process of stencils. And we definitely grab stencils for other things to lay things out a lot. Uh, It's it's great to be able to just drag stuff in and and make it work. Are they all vector based or do you? Sometimes just grab an image off the web or something and throw it on there. Um, if we're doing representations of objects, like if we're taking, uh, here's a black magic switcher, we might grab that front face um, sure. and we'll throw it in there. Or if we're, some of our um, markups, so like if I'm marking up how to use, let's say, again, let's say a black magic switcher, black magic has like straight ahead diagrams on the back. We actually have some versions of those where I had somebody actually convert those to, <laughs> to OmniGraffle <laughs> so that you could connect to the actual connectors. But, oh, nice. um, but in general, if we're trying to explain like, Hey, you got to plug something into here and here and here and here, we just grab that image, pop it in. And then we, then we add a bunch of lines to it with little arrows. And, you know, this is the, you know, kind of explaining something or diagramming out the way something might look. And so, uh, we use images for there. I try to keep it as much as I can to as many vectors as I can, just because it's uh, it, it lowers the uh, document weight. Right. Hmm. A lot of magnets. A lot of magnets. In fact, there's lots of discussions <laughs> about about how many magnets and where. You know, <laughs> you know, like you know, like do we need that many? And and you know, so we add. Uh, 
definitely add a, a fair number of magnets to things. Um, and then the other thing that I do is that you'll see like a router has, or a lot of the routers that we use are 40 by 40 in and 40 out. And so that's just a rectangle down the side. And then I just put literally little boxes all the way down on, on either side that are each have one magnet per edge. Right. So, and then make that a group. And then I can sit there and it just gives me a nice uh, IO and I can name them and, you know, all the fun stuff there. So, mm. uh, so yeah, but, but yeah, we definitely make use of, of lots of magnets. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely the way to go. In fact, there's a lot of people get a lot of feedback if they don't use the magnets. Like if, if it's going to like, <laughs> they're all going to the center of the right. box or if they're going to whatever. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> so, you know, and so, but at this point, uh, people get have gotten pretty fast. Oh, that's cool. Uh, how how big is Pixel Core? Well, we're you know we're um, we're kind of in a transition right now, so we're pretty small. I mean, I think at our height we were um, we're about thirty thirty five, mm-hmm. um, but we're uh, we're we're changing structure right now, so so we're oh, kind of moving okay. around. Yeah. Um, did you found it uh, after Lucasfilm? Uh, yeah. So soon I, after, or yeah, the big thing with the Rebel Mac unit was that we were all using off-the-shelf hardware, which was very unusual So with and software. So most of Industrial Light Magic was using SGIs and, and these you know, really expensive software. You know, so the, like the modeling software that I used when I was doing some stuff within CG, like $60,000 for the software. And mm-hmm. so um, Alias uh-huh. Studio. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so it was very expensive. We were using Macs, um, Little Macs. I mean, they're the biggest Macs that were there at the time, but they're very, very uh, underpowered compared to what we were, everything else in the, in the building. But we were doing lots of great shots. But we really learned that, hey, we can do actual film shots that are being done for a big movie on these little computers. And so when Star Wars ended, a bunch of guys kind of moved on to create a visual effects firm called The Orphanage. And I was like, I'm going to teach everybody how to do this. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, that, that's, I'd rather do that. I'd rather teach people how to do this than, than to try to compete with them. Because I was like, the future is going to be everybody doing this. So I started, you know, with a handful of people. And, you know, the Pixel Core really was very organic. You could just kind of come in. I didn't really know how I was going to make money with it yet. <laughs> and mm-hmm. people could come into the office every Monday. There was this graphics night. And five people would show up and I'd say, okay, we're going to take over the world. And they go, okay, that's great. <laughs> and, um, and so maybe five more people every time before we knew it, we had like 200 people. And wow. uh, I was like, I got to charge people for this because I, you know, I need more space. And so we started char- charging them 50 bucks a month and they all paid it. And before we knew it, we were now, now we had space and we could do things. And, and then we were like, I wonder if this would work online. And so we <sighs> put it online and jumped to 2000 members pretty quickly. Yep. So we had members all up in 40 countries learning visual effects and we were teaching HDR, you know, in 2002, 2003. Mm. And, and, and some of the folks in the pixel core were not necessarily professionals. I mean, they were like house moms in Iowa and they were learning how to shoot HDRs, you know, and, uh, mm-hmm. um, so you know, cool. because they were interested in it and they were passionate about yeah. it. I think Mark was, you were, uh, one of yeah, those. I was one of those students. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was it was a really fun time. I, yeah. I don't know. Hopefully, it was a fun time. It was a fun time for me. I hope it was a fun time for you. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. I, I was really glad to learn Shake, and then very disappointed when it uh, died. But <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and it was it was one of those things that that we you know we built it up, and we were trying to figure out how do we teach. We kept on growing, and then we were trying to figure out how do we teach everybody. So we started trying to run classes online, and you know it was all through a forum, and we were putting up videos. But we were trying. We started doing some live streaming to figure that out. Out. Mm-hmm. And we were in this kind of weird in between where we weren't making enough money to get bigger, but it wasn't quite working where we were. And then suddenly, as we started doing the live streaming, 
all of these corporate clients were like, hey, this looks way better than what we're paying for. And we're paying a lot mm-hmm. of money to mm-hmm. get this done. Can you do that? So we thought we could do both of them at the same time, but we couldn't. And so we ended up doing um, the live streaming and, you know, we started doing a lot of stuff for Salesforce and we were doing a bunch of post-production work for Adobe. And, hmm. and so that was a bunch of stuff that we were kind of putting together, a lot of training videos for Adobe. And, and then for Salesforce, we were doing training videos and then we started moving to live streaming. And then in about 2011, Google was, had this thing called Hangouts they were launching and they had a lot of trouble finding a team that could actually make it work. And uh, they had a lot of uh, failures with external teams. Their internal team could do it, but their external team couldn't. And so we didn't screw up the first one. And (laughs) and then I lost like three years of my life. I mean, I don't even know what I'd wake up. I'd wake up. I wouldn't know what continent I was on. And it was always basically we became this kind of high, the high profile team for Google. And then we moved to doing a lot of work with Facebook, doing um, uh, their uh, Facebook Live launches and 360 launches. And so Mm. and then a lot of other companies that we, you know, just did their events. You know, that's kind of where we we kind of organically. We're just trying to figure this out. Now, you know, I'm actually trying to return more towards doing, still doing some production, but really getting back to my more education roots where uh, I don't know if we'll reproduce the Pixel Core, but we're definitely going to, I'm going to be doing a lot more kind of training. I always wanted to do more general media, but the expectation when I left ILM was that I was going to teach everybody visual effects. And so every time I started moving Mm -hmm. away from visual effects and more towards just media you know, the pixel core, you know, we lose members. <laughs> so, so we go, oh, okay, well that doesn't work. And so we keep on, we were held there for a while. Now we're kind of coming back. And the reality is I know way more about live production than I ever knew about visual effects, <laughs> you know, after 2000 events. And so, so I'm hoping to kind of uh, rekindle that over the next couple of months and into the next few years of it's, it's what I really love to do is, is teach people how to, how to communicate with, uh, with all these cool tools. Nice. Sounds uh, it sounds very cool what you've got coming up. Yeah, it's been yeah it's it's a whole other story. So it's it's been it's been interesting. You know, there's a lot of lessons in uh, getting over your skis. <laughs> uh, yeah. You grow a little too fast, and you think that nothing can go wrong, and then it does. Yeah, so, sure. So anyway, but it's uh, but I'm I'm much more excited about the future than. I, I prefer it to the the alternate problem of never even getting the skis on in the first place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Or or constantly on the on the wrong slope or bunny yeah. slope or or whatever. <laughs> right. You know, like not being able to get past. So no, it's it's good. It's good. Yeah. yeah. So tell me about Mac Break. I mean, I've been listening for quite a long time, but I don't think I was maybe there from the very beginning. So I don't know how that came together. How yeah. you know what role you played. Uh, I can't remember exactly when MacBreak became a conversation, but you know we were doing our own little videos and and stuff for the web, and and I mean I started doing web videos in two thousand, you know, but we were doing flash animations that we mm-hmm. would put up because we didn't have enough money for the bandwidth, you know, for the the actual videos pre YouTube and pre mm. you know uh, where everything was expensive. And so we we've been doing this for a long time, and we had helped some companies actually launch their you know, online video seemed to be the next big thing. And then this, when people started doing series, you know, they started calling them podcasts and (laughs) there was, there was kind of this thing like, Oh, okay, we'll start calling them. The thing we were doing, we're going to call them podcasts. I was on air. I had been on air from 2002 on with Leo, Leo Laporte. Mm -hmm. I was brought in on for tech TV when they were doing screensavers. And one of the Pixel members worked in the team, (laughs) you know, worked at tech TV, and said, hey, you know, they're always looking for guests. Would you like to be a guest? And I was like, sure. So next thing I know, I'm, I'm on there showing Photoshop and visual effects tricks. Um, then I moved to call for help. And then when G4 was 
bought Tech TV. Then I followed Leo to Canada. So I was on there and was on with Leo and Amber MacArthur. And so I was on there for many, many seasons. And Leo was playing with this podcasting thing, doing Twit. Mm-hmm. It was Leo's little hobby, you know, when it started. Mm-hmm. And people were kind of donating some money and he was kind of doing it. But his real income was his shows, you know, the shows that he did right. in Canada and his weekend show and so his radio show. And so so Leo was kind of playing with it. And I was, you know, sometimes on it, a lot of times around it. And I kept on telling Leo, I don't think Leo's ever forgiven me that I was like, we should do video. We should do video. Because <laughs> <laughs> now he's got this video thing where it was a lot simpler when it was just audio. <laughs> and so so we started recording some of them. Uh, we had we had. Because we were doing other productions, we had a bunch of cameras. And so uh, the very first twit, I think, was this weird collection of cameras that were not all the same. And we were doing the best we could. And I, of course, told Leo that I could do a multicam edit really fast, you know, overnight. And <laughs> I couldn't. I'd never done it before. So, <laughs> so it, I pulled an all-nighter figuring it out and, and got uh-huh. it out. But, but it was kind of hacking through it. All of that stuff started to, you know, kind of come together. And I really was interested in doing a Mac-based show. So we started thinking through it. And a friend of mine, Peter Afanis in New York, we were talking to him and we were coming up with names and we, we came up with MacBreak. And there was a MacBreak daily for a while that we tried that was like little one-minute tips on how to use it. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. And so we did that for a, a little while. But then I decided we should do a weekly show. And I really had thought about doing it as a video show, which is really where MacBreak, the first MacBreak, I believe was 2006. It might have been 2005. I, can't, I cannot remember. I have to go back. It's either 2005 or 2006 was the first one. And it was with Emery Wells, who was the founder of Frame.io, Amber, MacArthur, Leo, and myself running around with a you know, with a camera. <laughs> and, um, and anyway, so we, uh, you know, we did one show, but then we went and did on in front of a green screen. Uh, we, we did another 25 shows, but we did them all. And I had just bought these cameras with the largest purchase at the time that I'd ever made. I bought, uh, two of the star Wars cameras cause I had found out, you know, from friends that they were selling off the, the digital cameras. <laughs> Very so, cool. Yeah. Well, it, you know, it, in 2000, I, I, again, I think it's 2005, 1080p uncompressed is a lot of data. You know, mm-hmm. like it was 230 yep. megs a second, which is nothing today, but it was a lot back then. I had to build servers and then we bought two X serves and we had two X serves just to get the data off the, you know, live wow. off the cameras because um, mm-hmm. we didn't, couldn't afford a tape deck. Like the, the cameras didn't have a tape deck. It just literally just was the, the raw video coming out of it. Mm. So anyway, so we had this whole system and so we recorded them all, but we didn't know how to. I actually hadn't figured the whole pipeline out. It took me like a month to figure out how to actually get that much data comped, you know, remove all the green screen and put everything in and cut back and forth. And there was a lot of problems with it, a lot of problems with the data. In fact, I think the second, the first Mac break was all shot handheld. Second one was like the, called the road to 1080p because, and it was like how we're getting there and how we're doing it and why it's big and why it's better. And the reason I did that, that video was because I, couldn't get the actual episodes out. And so, and so there was like, you know, so I, I was like, just Leo was mad because it was, there was a long time between this. And he was like, I, you know, it doesn't look good for me to do one and then doesn't have another one. And so I was like, I'll get it done. I'll get it done. So I put up this road to 10 NDP <laughs> and, uh, and then I finally got one out. And then once we got it going, it was nothing, you know, like once we got a pattern going, it was fine. And so that was Mac break video. And, and we did a lot of those episodes, but we did want to have just an audio podcast as well. That was a little lighter. And so we started that. I started it actually. And we did a bunch of episodes that were just purely audio uh, roundtables. And Leo was sometimes in it and sometimes not in it. Mm. And then I don't remember exactly when, but somewhere in the first six months or a year, Leo was really interested in having his part of what he was doing. And so 
it was literally i just handed it off to him i just said here i know it'll be mm. more successful with leo than it will be with me doing it because i'm always busy doing six things at one time and you know it was going to get a lot better um attention from leo and a lot it was just going to do better sure so leo took it over so i think the very first episodes that you see on twit were actually the first ones that twit really took over that leo really took over okay and mm. there was a there was kind of a pre pre-twit <laughs> mm-hmm. that i don't i think those ones just kind of disappeared into the ether but we did we were doing a lot of podcasts back then mac break was just one of them there was this week in media there was inside the black box there was gear media tech there was oh, a, whole, a whole a whole bunch of other uh we, we were doing a bunch of podcasts all at the same time with a little some teams that were that were putting those together and so at the time it was just the one but <laughs> fortunately i did hand it off to leo because the other ones you know they weren't making any money you know, they were just kind of um, us figuring it out. They did lead to a lot of work. That's what led to a lot of our productions with Adobe, with On Networks, which became uh, Studio, with Revision 3. So a lot of the production work that we ended up doing for them, and even the stuff we did for Salesforce, was really driven from experimenting and figuring out, you know, how to do all these episodes and how to make them all work. And so mm-hmm. they were very valuable in that sense. But then over time, as we got busier with work that was paying, it was hard to keep on doing work that wasn't paying in the same pipeline. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. That's how to be a pioneer. You yeah. Just go out there and do stuff. <laughs> yeah, learn. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> just try not to get too many arrows. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I'm still a devoted uh, listener of well, uh, MacBreak Weekly. I, I love it. It's a great show. It's, it's, we have a lot of fun. I just think it's such a great mix of people. I think mm-hmm. each one of us represents a different segment of the Mac user base. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And so I think that that's part of what makes it work is that we all really respect each other and all truly like each other. And at the same time, we don't all see it the same way. And so, right. so there's that kind of camaraderie, as, but also friction that is just the right mix a lot of times to just uh, really create a show that, that I think is really enjoyable to be on. I'm glad mm-hmm. that you find it enjoyable to listen to. Oh, yeah, I totally do. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's like, you know, a, a song can't be good unless there's like a little tension in there. Right? Exactly. And it's exactly. the same with anything else. Yeah. 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 Frankly, it's just one of my favorite listens and has been for quite some time now. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a really fun show to be on. Well, on that note, I think um, I want to say thank you, Alex. Uh, thank thanks you. so much for coming on. My pleasure. How can people find you on the web? Well, MacBreak Weekly, obviously. MacBreak Weekly. And generally, the uh, the easiest way to find me is on Twitter. I probably spend most of my time projecting <laughs> outward um, mm-hmm. on, over, over Twitter and just Alex Lindsay on Twitter. And usually it's useful information, not always. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's Twitter for you. Yep, yep, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to thank you, Ken, for joining us for this episode. Thanks so much. Certainly. Uh, and Mark for being another co-host on this episode. Oh, yeah. Thank you. And especially I want to thank you, the listeners, for listening. Thank you. Music. Music.